It's a joy to be back with you all. And this fall, for RUF at Arkansas, just move this around, we're going through a series called Sermon on the Mount, The Good Life According to Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew's five, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it's called that because Jesus is preaching a sermon on the side of a mountain. So it's a very creative um, title by theologians. But in this scene, right before this in Matthew 4, you have to understand the context. That Jesus has just started his public ministry, uh, and it's blowing up. I mean, healings are happening, people are being converted, he's got 100,000 followers on Twitter, he's being asked to, to large churches and large conferences, it is amazing. And you know what he does? He shuts down all his accounts, he turns off his phone, he says no to everything else, and he goes to a mountainside with his disciples to teach them. And so if you're a disciple, he's here to teach you this morning. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount gets a bad rep because there's a lot of rules. Jesus says, don't do this a lot. And indeed, there are a lot of commands. In fact, there are over 50 commands in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Crazy ones too, like cut off your hand and gouge out your eye and love your enemy. But you have to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is so much bigger than these commands. That what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to describe to his people, the good life in his kingdom, the way that the life should be lived in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Because look, no one wakes up and wants to have a bad life. None of you woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to pursue my bad life today. I hope it's really bad today. I hope I have a bad life. Like Nobody wants that. Um, everybody wants a good life. Everybody wants a, a life of fullness where you lay your head on the pillow at night and you're satisfied, right? You guys all want that. I want that. The question becomes, what is the correct picture or version of the good life? That's the question for us. Which, look, living in America, we're constantly being bombarded with different visions of the good life, right? Bigger house, uh, bigger car, vacations, get the job that pays the most. And those things are all fine, okay? But, you know, marry a redhead pastor and have three kids. I'm just kidding, that's my wife. That's just her vision of the good life. You can pray for her, because that, that's the good life she has. Um, but no, uh, we all have a different vision. And Jesus, in this passage, is actually come in the flesh, God himself, and he's opened his mouth with words. He's going to tell us what the good life is. Uh, one um, commentator said, I think these are the most significant words ever spoken. And so that's why we're going to listen to them. And so if you would now, please rise. As we read uh, the very first words of his sermon, this, this is called the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And so as we read it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why? Does Jesus begin his sermon articulating the good life with the word blessed? Why is that the very first word he says? What is that going to tell us about what it means to live in God's kingdom? So with that, please give your attention to the good news of a God who gives us a vision of the good life. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word that he gives to you because he loves you. You may be seated. What do you want? What do you want? This is a question that Jesus asks his disciples in John 1. The scene is that there are two disciples and they're hanging out with John the Baptist, baptizing people, preaching the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist looks over the river and says, look, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah. He's the whole reason I exist. He's the whole reason I'm here. And so the, the two disciples go, see you later, J-baby. We're going to move up in ministry. We're going to Jesus. And the scene is that these two disciples are sprinting after Jesus, running after him, panting after him. And they get to him. And in John 1.38, Jesus wheels around on him. And he looks at him and he says, what do you want? What do you want? That's the question. What do you want? James K. Smith is a Christian philosopher. And he, asks, he wrote this book called You Are What You Love. And he argues that fundamentally what it means to be a human being is to love, to desire, which, of course, we were made for God, made to love and desire, and that you're always going to want things. That's not wrong. The question is, you're not supposed to squelch it, but the question is, uh, you, you need to reorient them, to, to, to harness them, to shape them. And this is like, look, the mall, food signs, advertisements, Victoria's Secret, all of these things understand that about human beings. I passed a truck on the way here that had like fudge brownies and a kid smiling. What are they appealing to, right? Desire. And so Jesus knows that. He made us like that. And so he asks the question to the disciples and he asks you, what do you want? And James K. Smith tells a story uh, in his book about this movie called American Beauty, where Kevin Spacey is a character, he's a middle-aged man, his name's Lester, he's a daughter in high school, his marriage is falling apart, and he wants to quit his job, and he does. And he gets a fast red sports car, he's going through a midlife crisis, and uh, he's finally doing what he wants to do, it's the theme. He's doing what he wants not what his wife wants, not what his children want, not what societal wants for him, societal expectations, what he wants. And his marriage is estranged. His life is falling apart. And he eventually pursues even his daughter's best friend in high school. And she wants him to. And near the end of the movie, they're alone in the house. And he looks at her and he says this to her, tell me, what do you want? And she goes, I don't know. What do you want? And he goes, are you kidding me? I want you. I've wanted you since the first moment I saw you. And then James K. Smith tells that the scene, not two minutes later, is that, is that Kevin Spacey's character has collapsed because he sees that this is not really what he wants. And the girl is crying, and she's saying, I'm so stupid. And it's this pathetic scene where these two people are looking at each other, realizing this is not what they want, and they have no idea what they want. They have no idea. Look, if Jesus was here right now, and he looked at you, and he asked you the question, what do you want, what would you say? Deep down, that question resonates with us in all its vague uh, you know, ways, and yet we're, we're not quite sure how to articulate it, right? Walker Percy, the great novelist in his book, The Last Gentleman, said about this, about The Last Gentleman. He says, thereafter, the last gentleman came to see that he was not destined to do everything, but only one or two things. Lucky is the man who does not secretly believe that every possibility is open to him. Lucky is the man who does not secretly believe that every possibility is open to him. And we might say this, we might paraphrase, blessed is the woman who knows what she wants. Blessed is the man who actually knows what he wants. 
Because we all desire, we all want things, we all run after other things like Kevin Spacey, thinking that this thing will satisfy us, this thing will fulfill us, this will make us happy. And the question that Jesus poses to us in his Sermon on the Mount, underlying all of this, is what do you actually want? What are you running to? Is it your job, fantasy football? Is it food or drink? Is it your children, maybe memories of the good old days? Is it that one compliment, that one time you felt actually valued and special that you're clinging to? Do you know what you want? And I'm going to suggest this morning that Jesus actually knows. He actually knows what we want as human beings. And he tells us in one word. And it is the very first word that he says in his sermon. Verse 3. Blessed. That deep down, none of you and none of me, well, just me, it's just me, I'm one person. Um, All of us here are not going to experience a good life unless we know that God actually blesses us. If we don't have God's blessing, we can't enjoy the good life. That's the claim. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk about that in three ways. One is, well, what does it mean to be blessed by God? Why do we want it slash need it? And how do we get it? What does it mean to be blessed? Why do we want it? And how do we get it? So first, what does it mean to be blessed? Um, Now, this word that Jesus uses, blessed, uh, has lost a lot of its potency today. Um, It seems either sort of superficial and ethereal, uh, or it seems trivial, right? Like, I have to sneeze a lot to get this blessing from other people, or uh, my grandma, who's an old, godly Southern Baptist woman, would pinch my cheek a lot and say, bless you, Michael. Um, And so, like all things in the Bible, the question we have to ask is, what did this word mean actually in its original context to the first people on that mountainside who heard it? Because some commentators uh, and many people would translate it as it just means happy, or maybe even divinely happy. Happier those who are poor in spirit. Um, and, and I think that is true, but I think it has to be much deeper than that. Not only because our American definition of happiness conveys a sort of comfort and a sort of selfishness that we're pursuing happiness on our own terms, but also because Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And I don't know a lot of people who are happy when they're getting their heads cut off, right? That doesn't make them happy. So the question is, it's got to go deeper. Um, the dictionary definition for the Greek word of blessed here is a privileged recipient of divine favor. That to be blessed means you are a privileged recipient of God's grace. To be blessed is not something you earn, but it's a grace you receive. As one commentator put it, to be blessed means that you are actually approved by God. It means you enjoy a a right relationship with Him. It means that God is actually for you. He's actually for you when He blesses you. And that to be in God's kingdom, to live the good life, it means that you are living in a relationship by grace. So if that's what blessed is, then then why do we want it so badly, though? Why do we need it? I think we crave and want approval. We want to know deep down that God actually loves us, that he's actually for us. Um, And you know the people we care most about, that's kind of what we want from them too, right? Think about your uh, parents or your children. Think about your friendships, your relationships, uh, a mentor. You desperately want them to approve of you and tell you to give, to give you their blessing, right? To know that they are patient with your mistakes, that they, they treat you with grace, that even if you have a bad day, they don't change their opinion of you. Um, at nighttime, when I put my kids to bed, I tell them, I'll start with, I'll just, I'll just give it with Luke. I say, Luke, do you know who you are? And he's like, Luke. And I'm like, yeah, you're my son, Luke. Do you know who I am? He's like, you're being silly, you're daddy. I'm like, that's right, I am your daddy. Do you know that I love you? He's like, Yes. Uh, I'm like, do you know why I love you? Because you're my son. And I'll always be your daddy, and you'll always be my son, and I will always love you no matter what. 
And I said that, and I started doing that because as I, as I not only read the scriptures in the way that God treats us as his children, but also, this happens also in child psychologists will tell you that the two fundamental questions children ask are, am I safe and loved in this house, and can I do what I want? Am I safe and loved, but also can I do what I want? And every good parent somehow tries to communicate that you are absolutely in every way safe and loved. And also, you can't always do what you want. Because what you want is not the good life. That's, that candy will make you sick. Um, staying up late will make you irritable and cranky and disobedient the next day, right? We know that. And what I want to say is Jesus himself, God in the flesh, comes to you on the mountainside and with his words blesses you and say, you are safe and loved in my kingdom. I want you in my kingdom. I start with grace. The reason this resonates with us is because this is the story of Scripture, that we were actually made to be blessed. In Genesis 1, God makes the whole world in six days. The crowning jewel of his creation is human beings on the sixth day. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female in his likeness. And do you know what the very next verse is? It says, and God blessed them. That's the very first thing that happens to us in our story of humanity. We are blessed immediately. He goes, I'm blessing you. I'm with you. I approve of what you do. Now go make babies and go garden. Like that's what Jesus says. That's what God says. But then also in Revelation 19, at the end of our story, at the consummation of history, there's this wedding feast where God is sitting down with his bride. And they're feasting together. We are going to feast with Jesus. And you know what it says? It said, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we are blessed to be invited to sit down at the table with Jesus. That our story as believers in Jesus Christ begins and ends in blessing. Tim Keller says that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will destroy my soul. It's my kind of phrase. It's pretty strong there. Um, but the reason is because words stick with us, Right? They shape us both positively and negatively. I'll never forget when my wife said on a date, uh, I'm so proud of the man you're becoming. And I'll never forget when someone else very close to me uh, said, I'll never be able to forgive you. Why do I remember those words? Because words are powerful. And here Jesus, the one through whom the whole world has made, is coming into the world to remake the world and to remake you. And he says that the good life begins with a blessing. And he, he says to you that you are blessed if you are in Jesus Christ. So if that's what blessing is, and that's why we want it and crave it, because it is our story, it's the meaning of our life, then how do we get it? Uh, and I want to say the first three Beatitudes give us a key. They, they, they help us understand. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the humble. That uh, Jesus says we have to become poor, weak, and needy. That God does not bless the people with the best resumes, the best bodies, the tough guys, the Friday night light guys, the cutest faces, the trust fund babies, the CEOs. That is not who he says he blesses. He blesses people who are nobodies, who are poor. The rejects of the world, that's who God blesses. That's who's in his kingdom. If he was on The Bachelor, this is for my college students, of course, uh, he would have picked the girl who cried the most and made the most drama. Why? Because blessing is a grace in his kingdom. That the good life in God's kingdom can only be lived by grace. And as poor people, you know, the most amazing thing about poor people is uh, that they, well, they're really needy. And they don't find their identity in what they have. Because why? They don't have anything. It's, they, they receive everything they get. And what about people who cry and who mourn? They're defenseless. They're acknowledging that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. 
and they can't do anything about it except cry. They need someone to come and fix it. And what about people who are meek, who are humble and gentle? This is, look, this is the one attribute that Jesus describes about himself. He could have chosen any virtue, any, any attribute, and this is what he says. Come to me in Matthew 11, for I am what? I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'm meek. It means to give up any rights you have, any entitlement you feel for other people. And why does Jesus say that these people are blessed? Because the good life begins with grace. It begins with blessing. And how do you get that blessing? You receive it. Hands open, receive it as a gift. That it is. The grace is a gift. And this again is for my college students, but you'll appreciate it. This is during the first week is when I preached a sermon to the college students during rush week. And I said, look, if Jesus did rush week, because right now every one of them is getting cut from a sorority or cut from a fraternity, because they didn't have enough uh, resume, they didn't know enough people, their daddy didn't have enough money, and they're all getting cut based on their personality and their connections. And I said, but look, if Jesus did his rush week, he'd have a big old party. And the only way you would get in is that you would come up to him with your hands open, and he'd put his hand on your shoulder or your cheek, and he'd look at you in the eyes, and he'd say, welcome to my sorority. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit my sorority. Like, that's what Jesus would say. He would say that you can come into my kingdom because in my kingdom, every single person here is here by grace. Every single person. And what I think this means for us is that, um, look, it's so easy to fall into the trap of trying to earn God's blessing, to earn God's grace. Uh, Like, if we read the Bible enough, we do enough church stuff or, or ministry or whatever, then we'll have this blessing. Because every other relationship that you and I have is kind of... Uh, meritorious, right? Like every relationship we have, we operate in, is trying to earn our um, value and our acceptance. To keep your job, you have to perform well according to your employer standards. Um, Some of you are in marriages or friendships that are passive-aggressive and they're defined by earning love. You screw up one time, well, you're back in the doghouse. I'm not going to trust you again. And you've got to grovel and atone and do enough laundry and do enough dishes to make your way back into my good graces, right? Every relationship we have is usually defined by earning it to get people's approval, to get their blessing. But that's not the case in Jesus' kingdom. Now look, Jesus has plenty of stuff for us to do, okay? Works are all, he's all about it. There's plenty of work to be done. Ephesians 2.8, we are created, uh, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That stuff in Louisiana is amazing. That's what the church is supposed to be doing, amen. But if you start with that, and you don't start with God's grace and his blessing, then you'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you've earned God's love, if he's proud of you, if he's happy for you. You will never know. You'll always wonder. And that's why you have to start with grace and with a blessing. Jesus is like, stop that foolishness. I want you in my kingdom because I can make you in my kingdom, not because of what you have to offer me. Uh, I think this is um, captured so well in the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. She's a a well-known novelist uh, of our day and age. And in the book Gilead, there's a pastor who was married uh, young his wife died and his child died in childbirth. He got to hold the child for only a few minutes. And he doesn't marry for 30 or 40 years. And he gets married when he's like 68 or 69 to a woman half his age. And they have a child. And he thought he'd never be able to see his boy grow up. And the boy's seven or eight years old. And he's writing his begats because he knows he's going to die. And his, his son's going to grow up without a father. So he wants to show and tell the boy, this is, this is what I would have told you if you had me growing up. But there's this wonderful, wonderful paragraph in the beginning, where John Ames is is the pastor's name, where he writes this to his seven or eight-year-old boy. Your hair is straight and dark, and your skin is very fair. I suppose you're not prettier than most children, 
You're just a nice-looking boy, a bit slight, well-scrubbed, and well-mannered. And all that is fine, but it's your existence that I love you for mainly. Existence seems to me now the most remarkable thing that could have ever imagined. You see, to hear that you are loved because you exist, that God wants you in his kingdom, not because of what you offer, but because of who you are, is one of the greatest things, I think, that we can imagine. Because in the good life, you have to understand Jesus is also somebody who desires. Jesus is also somebody who wants things. And do you know what he wants? He actually knows. He wants you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want your good looks, your personality, your money. I mean, he gave that to you anyway. He doesn't need that. He wants your heart. He wants you. And this is why he lived his entire life for you. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know who that joy was? You know what it was? You. You were his joy. You were his good life. And what happens on the cross? Galatians 3 tells us that cursed is the man who dies on the cross, right? Hangs on a tree. So Jesus actually was cursed for you that you might be blessed. He asked for the bad life so that you could have the good life. And the cross is a place where you can see with confidence that Jesus actually knows what he wants and he's willing to die for it. He wants you in his kingdom. He wants to bless you. And if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never committed to him, if you've never given your life to him, this might be the moment right now where he's calling you into his kingdom. Because don't you want to be in a place in a relationship where God loves you by his grace and you don't have to earn it? Don't you want that? And that this is the story of the cross, and this is our story, the meaning of our life, that we are blessed in Jesus by his grace. I'll close with this. Jim Carrey, an actor, last year in his Golden Globe uh, 2015, at the Golden, Golden Globe Awards, he was introducing an award. And listen to how he introduces it. He goes, I am two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. And everyone's kind of laughing. And he goes, you know, when I go to sleep, I'm not just any old guy, but I'm a two-time Golden Globe award-winning guy. And I don't just dream any old dream, no siree. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. And everyone's laughing. And then he says this, and it gets incredibly awkward. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I can stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And if Jesus was there, I think he would say this to Jim. He would go, Jim, what do you want? What do you want, Jim? Jim Carrey would say, I don't know. I don't know, I want people to like me, not because of my acting, but because of me. I don't know, whatever it is, though, this good life I pursued hasn't satisfied me. It hasn't fulfilled me. It's a terrible search. And Jesus would look at him with grace and sincerity and love, and he'd say, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jim, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In my kingdom, I begin with grace. Receive it as a gift. Let me pray for us. Father, we worship you and praise you as the God, though you had all things, though we do not deserve your grace, you give it to us first. Then in your kingdom, we can live and do all the works you've called us to do because we know that we are safe and loved. We can't always do what we want, 
but we know that we are safe and loved in you. Jesus, we praise you for the cross, for the confidence that we have in it, that it might enable us to go out into this world serving and working for you in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our good life, our blessing. Amen.